Today's scripture reading is from Daniel 11. If you would like to follow along in our red Bibles in the pews, we will read Daniel 11, 36 through 40, page 749. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what he has decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by woman. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price." At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, and with many ships. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. It's a wonderful text for Father's Day. Uh, Happy Father's Day to all of you uh, who are dads. So here we are in Daniel, and... This is the second longest chapter in the book of Daniel. And so we're not going to go like the verse by verse uh, that we usually do. Um, just we're, we're going to take a satellite up and we're going to look down on it and look at a, a more broad view of this. Because this can take a, a really, really long time into going, going through it. And it's not that I don't want to do that. But I do think it's something that you can study on your own. As well as from the previous chapters we have studied already. Um, chapter 11, what it's doing is it's actually going into more detail of some of the things that have already been shared about in, in the previous chapters of Daniel. So you'll, you'll notice by what Kayla just read that this is a, a complex chapter. Um, and like the rest of Daniel's apocalyptic literature, it, it's challenging to interpret. Now, when Daniel wrote uh, this chapter, he actually wrote chapters 10 through 12 as a single unit. He wrote them uh, to be interpreted as one unit. So that's something that we need to keep in mind as we are reading these last few chapters here is we have to take this as a whole unit. It can't be separated from the other parts. Uh, we break them into bite-sized pieces just so that we can kind of take them in, but it's written as one. So that being the case, we'll do a quick review of chapter 10. Uh, so that we can like get up to speed here in chapter 11. So in chapter 10, we were introduced to this angel who appeared to Daniel, to, who explained the vision to Daniel and, and what was going to happen to them in the latter days. So we can turn back to Daniel chapter 10, start in verse 13, and let me just read that really quickly. The prince of the king of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So Daniel was being informed of what the future holds, and he was given this glimpse into a spiritual realm, that the curtain was pulled back from the physical so that he can get a glimpse into the heavenly realm where the physical eye could not see, but he was given this understanding that the, the physical manifestations that we were experiencing on earth uh, was influenced by what, by what was happening in the heavenly realms where those evil forces influence the powers here on earth, and that this rise and this fall of nations uh, was evidence of that. It was evidence of what was happening in the heavenly realm of influencing what was happening in the physical realm. So 
This was already looked at in chapter 8 when we read of that goat with one horn greater than the other. That was the Medo-Persians. The Persian side was greater than the Medo. And, and so um, that's that, that goat there. And then that they would fall to a mightier goat. And that was uh, Greek, uh, Greece. And so that picture was already given to us in chapter 8. Chapter 11 gives us the greater detail of what that introduction of chapter 8 happens. And so when we approach the Bible, something that we have to be very aware of is that we have to be very humble about it. We have to exercise humility. And the reason I bring this up is because Daniel himself said at the end of chapter 8, I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. And then you go into chapter 12 and verse 8, he says this, I heard, but I did not understand. And it's really important for us to admit that, that when we reach these places where we just don't understand it, we can just say, I, I don't understand it. To practice that humility and to practice that faith that is seeking understanding that we don't always understand at first glance at something or at first read, but we, we pursue it, we seek for understanding. And we need to be cautious about those people who claim to understand everything in the Bible. You know, if they say, oh, I, I get it, I got it all, then I, I advise that you walk away from that person. Because there are mysteries that we just simply don't understand, but we, we need to endeavor to dig that up and figure those things out. But there are some things that we just won't understand, and even Daniel himself confesses he doesn't understand. So, what do we know so far? We know that the exiles were freed to go home, that they were repatriated by Darius the Mede, but that things don't go smoothly for them because they face this very heavy opposition from people who don't want them to repatriate back to Jerusalem. So the rebuilding of Jerusalem comes to this screeching halt. And then Daniel is given this behind-the-scenes look into the spiritual realm as to what was really happening. That was chapter 10. That was last week. Now, a background verse for us to remember is this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so when Daniel sees this vision, his breath is just taken away by it. He is weakened by this revelation. And what is happening in the heavenly realm has these very serious implications as to what happens here in our physical realm. Let's read verses 1 through 3, Daniel 11. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do as he wills. So this prophecy did not happen in Daniel's time. He was speaking about the future, and it points us back to Daniel chapter 8, verse 22. This great warrior, this great king who is Alexander the Great, whose kingdom was divided into four parts after his death, and it's referenced in this, referencing this period. And you can even read secular history to read about how his kingdom was divided into four kings, and it's amazing prophetic stuff. Verses 4 through 6. And as soon as he was risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be, with, shall be a great authority. 
And some years shall make an, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Now, we can go through these visions part by part, and it will be fascinating. Um, maybe not for everyone, but for me it was fascinating. But it'll just prove how accurate the Bible is in its prophecy. Moving through like Seleucid Empire, Ptolemaic Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes, and on down the line. And all of that is here in chapter 11. And it will show just this amazing biblical prophecy that was prophesied in 6th century B.C. That the Bible's prophetic declarations of what was going to take place in world history actually happened. And that in 2019, we can verify everything that has happened. Now, there are some who are opposed to the Bible who think that this can't possibly be prophetic, that it was written after the fact that history had happened and then they went back and recorded it as prophecy. Um, but very few people accept that explanation. That doesn't kind of match up. Most people, most scholars do believe that, yes, this was something that Daniel wrote in 6th century BC. How does he know this? This is miraculous. This is prophetic. Now, going back to um, our verses this morning, I'm not going to read verses 7 through 35, and you guys are probably thanking me for that. Like, I just want to point out some huge chunks about it and, and pull out some thoughts in those verses. So here's a very, very fascinating thing. When you read from verses 2 through 20, that is covering a 355-year span of history. That is covering from 530 B.C. to 175 B.C. And those 19 verses give us a prophetic glimpse from Cyrus to Antiochus. That's what that does there. When you look at verses 21 through 35, though, this is, an, this is a really, really interesting shift. Because in those next 15 verses, just those 15 verses, it covers 12 years from 175 to 163 B.C. So within that apocalyptic literature, those verses 2 through 20 cover 355 years. And then from 21 through 35, it's only 12 years. Why is Daniel doing that? Why did Daniel write it like this? We need to keep in mind that there's no colored text or fonts or like... Uh, colors or underlined bold. There's not, no word processing. So the way that the author is getting across something is using some way to distinguish that. And the way that Daniel does that is by pace. And so he is concentrating years into this compact section of his writing. And that's what he's doing here in writing about Antiochus Epiphanes within that 12-year uh, period. Now, Daniel devoted more verses about Antiochus because he was attempting to show this prototype of many of the leaders that are going to come after him, this prototype of an anti-God person, an anti-Christ person. And so he focuses on Antiochus, and then we can think about world leaders, evil world leaders who have done horrible things, anti-God things anti-Christ things. And you think of like the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Idi Amin's, the Pol Pot's, the Mussolini's, and the list goes on and on and on. Those people that embody anti-Christ, embody anti-God, but also realizing that it's only for a time that they don't 
Their regimes, their empires don't last forever. That they, they rise, but then they're gone. And that picture keeps coming over and over again. Whether you go back to the book of Exodus and you look at the Egyptians or you look at where Daniel's at with the Babylonian captivity or what he was, it was revealed to him by the angel, by the Medo-Persians, the Seleucids, the Greeks, the Romans, and then going into our more contemporary history with Mussolini, Stalin, and all those guys. That that's what's happening. That it's only for a time. And so this is what Daniel's pointing out here in, in various verses uh, between 2 and 35, because notice with me in verse 24, it says, only for a time. And so you notice the rise and the fall of injustice, of oppression, of persecution is only for a time. And then again in verse 27, you notice this rise and fall. It reads this, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. It's not the ultimate end yet. It's, you, we're going through this rise and fall stuff. And then again, verse 29, another rise and fall. And then you get to verse 35, and it's another vision of this rise and fall, that God is still God when we experience these rise and falls of our own lives, that we experience all these hardships. But before there was anything, before there was an Egyptian enslavement, before any of that, that there was God. And God is not who we want him to be. God is who God is. So then, who is God? Let's look to the New Testament. Let's look to Acts chapter 17. And in Acts 17, Paul is at the Areopagus in Greece. And so he's there, and um, this is the, the, the birthplace of Western philosophical thought. Right? This is the place where the emergence of Western philosophical tradition traces back to Greece. And this area where people like Plato and uh, Aristotle and Socrates, or what Bill and Ted say, Socrates, I prefer that. Pythagoras, right? Pythagorean theorem. All those great thinkers in all of human history, this is the birthplace of that. And so this is where Paul's at. And he is wanting to talk to these people and to let them know about the unknown God. Because there's an altar that's made to the unknown God because they had gods for everything. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gods. There's, there's, there's a God for everything. And so just in case we forget one, we're going to put one for the unknown God. Just in case. Because if we, like, we don't want to disturb the gods, we don't want to get them mad at us. So just in case, here's one for the unknown God just to make safe, right? So here we are picking up the story, verse 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. And they were. There's hundreds of gods there. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so this mocking continues to this very day where many don't believe that God sent someone for that purpose. Or we make God to who we want God to be, like the many of the Grecians there who made hundreds and hundreds of gods, when the scriptures are telling us who God is. Who is God? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 12. Who, this is, this is just a great series of rhetorical questions that Isaiah has written. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. That's God. No one else informs God of justice, knowledge, understanding, creation. And people make God to be someone else. People want their God to meet their expectations, to design things the way that they want them to be designed, to fulfill our purposes. But a God who does things God's way, we don't want that. We don't want you to do things your way. We want you to do things our way. But God is God. And God does take us through dark valleys. He does allow us to experience darkness he allows his son to be crucified so that he could be raised on the third day. But that isn't the God that people necessarily want to recognize. They want to see a God who they want to see. And oftentimes that is a God of convenience, a God of pleasure, a God that shows up when I need something, a God that leaves me alone so that I could do whatever I want. And so, essentially, they want a blue Will Smith, right? They just want... My kids really want to see that uh, Aladdin remake, but I, I don't want to take them um, because Robin Williams is always the genie. It's just not going not gonna to be a good substitute. Um, but yet, that's how many people view God, just my genie. When I need you, I want you to show up. I need something. I want something. Do this for me. Um, I, you don't tell me what to do. I rub the lantern. And I tell you what to do. That's, that's how we see God a lot of the times. But the God that we're reading about in Acts and in Isaiah, this is the God who has empires rise and fall while he sits on the throne the whole time. He's the only one who comforts in life and in death. 
He controls the details of all of history to say, I know what happened in your past. I know what's happening in your future. I will tell you what's happening in the present and in the future. And then I will tell you what's going to happen in the ultimate end. That he gives people his vision of the past, present, and future. And there are all these kingdoms in conflict, and he's engaged in all of it as he's fulfilling his eternal purposes. That none of it is out of his control. He is in control of all of it as it's all happening. Verse 36. This is probably the most difficult verse to interpret in this whole chapter, but let's look at verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. Now, why is this so challenging? Because in those previous verses where we said like he, he dedicated 19 verses to 355 years and then he dedicates you know, just 12 years into like these verses and then when you go into verse 36, you automatically think, oh, then he must be talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. He must just be carrying that through. Now, before we kind of go through this, we, I need to kind of give you a bigger picture of Daniel before we look into these, like, verse 36. What is Daniel about? What is the big picture of Daniel all about? And it's this. God is making Daniel a promise. And our sovereign God delivers his people from opposition, injustice, oppression, persecution, throughout time, he has done this. And so he proves this from rescuing them from Egyptian slavery. They are now in Babylonian captivity. He's saying, you're going to rebuild Jerusalem, but you're still going to suffer persecution, opposition, injustice. There's still the Medo-Persians, there's still the Seleucids, there's still the Greeks, or the Greeks, the Seleucids, and the Romans. Those are still all there to come. And it's going to continue. You're going to deal with the Hitlers. You're going to deal with the Mussolinis. You're going to deal with the Pol Pots. You're going to deal with all those people. But God is in control as evidenced from the past, from the book of Exodus in Egypt to the present, which was Daniel's Babylonian captivity. And for us, you can name whoever you want to name there, but we, we did live through many atrocities of very terrible people throughout world history. And God is in control of all of this. Past, present, future. And, and each time, he has delivered. He's delivered every single time. And so he's showing that he's in control. And he's showing that he currently delivers. That he's delivered in the past. He currently delivers. And he delivers in the future. And us in 2019 can look back at it and say, yeah, he has delivered. He did deliver in the past. And those people who lived in the present, he delivered them from that present. So why wouldn't he deliver in the future? And so God promises to raise his people from the dead and they will reign with God forever in his kingdom. That's the other piece of the future. And all of this is recorded not only in the Bible, but you can read this through secular history from Egyptian, Babylonian captivity, Greeks. You can read all of this, right? And you can read each time the rise and fall of nations in secular history. That's the big picture of Daniel. God is in control. You're going to go through terrible stuff. I'll deliver you. At the very end of it, you're going to be with me. We're going to reign together. We're going to rule together. 
That's Daniel in the big picture. So now back to verse 36. So is this referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, that solicit king from the previous verses that were talked about? Or is this someone else? For me, I'm interpreting this as the Antichrist as in the end, who takes us to the end of the age. And why do I do this? Because I look at Bible passages like Matthew 24, verse 15, when it reads this. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And you can also look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you can also look at Revelation 13 as to why I think that it's here. There are many people who disagree. I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm just saying that this is where I've landed. And there are people that disagree. They, they land all over the place as to who this person can be. This king in verse 36 has been identified as all sorts of people and all sorts of, um, not just people, but uh, events or, or regimes or empires. For example, John Calvin. If we took an IQ test, he'd stomp me, right? Like he's brilliant. He believes that this is the Roman Empire. That's, that's how he defined verse 36, that that king is the Roman Empire. There are other commentators, other scholars who believe it's Muhammad, right? What, what he's done with uh, the, the Christian world and with the Jewish world and, and that, that this is Muhammad that it's speaking of. And then you read the reformers and the reformers like Martin Luther will believe that it's the papacy, it's the Roman Catholic Church. And that's how he defines that. So these people are all smarter than me and they all have different versions of what they believe. I don't know. I, I believe it's not any of those. I believe it's the Antichrist. So, this phrase, the king shall do as he wills. This guy believes himself to be God. And this is why I don't believe it's Antiochus Epiphanes and carrying through. It's simply this. Antiochus Epiphanes worshipped Zeus. He, he lifted up Zeus when he... Uh, did the abomination of desolation. He was building an altar to Zeus, and that's where he killed a pig, spilled its blood on the altar, because a, a pig is an unclean animal to the Jews, and said, ha-ha, here, I'm going to do this to you guys, and I'm going to destroy everything that you guys have. I'm going to steal from your treasury. I'm going to do as I want, and I'm going to sit on this throne. Ha-ha, there, take that. But it was built as an altar to Zeus, so he's not saying he's God. That's why I don't think it's him. Verse 37, he shall pay no attention to the God of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. So this person will believe they are the greatest with no regard to any people, with no regard to any gods. And so there's this one phrase here that people love to extract, especially if they are, are strongly anti-LGBT. They, they love to bring this stuff up. And it says this, one beloved by women. It's, a, it's an interesting phrase. I admit that. But so when you look at scholars and what they believe in this, some will say, you know, that is in reference to the pagan deity Tamaz because women in the ancient world were very drawn to Tamaz. That's what it is. Or that this person just has no regard for women at all. He just does whatever he wants with women. He doesn't have anything to deal with women. He hates women, all this. Or this is a person that does not have uh, God's creative order as it relates to sexuality. And then they pull it out this and then they make it all about bashing of this, the LGBT community and they do that stuff. If you ask me who this is, this is one of those things where I can tell you, I don't know. I don't understand it. I, I, I can't tell you who it is. This is what I can tell you, though. 
no matter what it is, that this person is an extreme narcissist. That they just think about themselves. They have no regards to people. They have no regards to gods. It's just all about them. That's, that's all I can say about them. All the other stuff that people have written about in commentaries and things like that, I don't know. I don't know. Verse 38. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. So someone in love with power. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. So, so those who worship this Antichrist character, he's going to reward them. He's going to re reward them greatly. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come with countries and shall overflow and pass through. At the time of the end, the, the, the last period before the end of time, before the end of history as we know it, at the end of history, when it will come to an end. And then we're given this picture. Maybe chariots, horsemen, ships, but from how I'm reading this, it, it's not literal. It's, it's how the future was seen with contemporary eyes, right? So, so, for example, how would we convey the internet 75 years ago? How, how would you describe that? The only way you could do that is using contemporary objects and things and ideas and then writing those things down to kind of equate to what you're seeing in the future, right? That's, that's all you can do. So if you're talking about internet, like how can you possibly describe that? So you're going to start bringing things in that are, are there. So whether that's like the, some sort of press thing or like whatever it may be, like you're, you're trying to do that at that time. So this so-called chariot is probably not a chariot pulled by a horse. Like, if, if it were to happen today, we would say, it's a tank, right? That, that's a tank. But it's say like it's 100 years from now when tanks are not the weapon of land, land war. It's something else. Then it's that. But it's this person who's symbolically pulling from what's in front of their face into the future. And so we do look at this literally in the sense that, yes, a chariot slash tank slash whatever they use in the future for land warfare, but it's not literalistically in that it's an actual chariot. Does that make any sense? Yes? If not, I'm sorry, and we move on to verse 41. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. So you take ancient geography into consideration here because it's mentioning ancient civilizations, Edom, Moab, Ammonites, all enemies of Israel. So the glorious land was Palestine, and so after Christ, this geography of the kingdom, it just blew up. It's no longer around anymore. And the church went to the entire world. Something has never changed, though. The crosshairs of that Antichrist, that anti-God figure, has always been on the people of God. And that's who he's looking to take out. And so Edom, Moab, Ammon were enemies of Israel, which is why the Antichrist didn't oppose them, because they were actually allies of him. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the 
princes, uh, precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So in the end, nobody comes to help this Antichrist. And we can disagree on all the countries involved, uh, whether it's symbolic or literal, but we can all read that this is about a hatred toward the people of God, and it's going to re reach such a peak, but God's people will overcome. Just as Daniel has shown throughout all of the book of Daniel that God is in control, that the people may experience these humongous peaks of oppression and injustice, but then God delivers. Babylonian captivity. There's no way we're going to get out of this. Medo-Persians take over. Yeah, go ahead. Go repatriate back. What? No one could have ever predicted that. Right? And, and it, time and time again, this is happening. I reference 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me read a brief excerpt from that, starting in verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and to bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Jesus will be victorious over Antichrist, anti-God. That Christ is king. And no matter how we define chapter 11, all those things that happen in chapter 11, no matter how we kind of make it our own chronology, Christ is victor at the end. And so Daniel here is ensuring them that even though God has brought them through the exile and they are going to be rebuilding Jerusalem, there is... There are these promises to be fulfilled that are yet to come, even afterwards, that this isn't it. You still have to deal with the Medo-Persians. You still have to deal with the Greeks. You still have to deal with the Seleucids, the Romans, and many other Antichrist-type figures to come until the return of Jesus, the one promised Messiah. But you're going to have to deal with it throughout your future. And so when we look at our future, like, whoa, great, that sounds just great. Like, but we look back. Egyptians, Babylonian captivity, Greeks, Seleucids, Romans. Every time there's a rise, God puts them back into their place. There's a rise, and God puts them back into their place. Until the ultimate deliverance of Messiah. So you will live in this conflict, this war, this oppression, this injustice, until you recognize Messiah. And that's the picture for us. Jesus Christ lived, died, resurrected, ascended, left the church to fulfill the mission, for us to fulfill the mission of spreading the gospel until he returns. And we continue to point people to Messiah in their own personal lives. Maybe you're not, we're not in a war where we're being oppressed and injustice is forced upon us, but it's maybe something in our personal lives where we're just dealing with evil, wrong, just terrible stuff happening in our life. And it's a reminder, you're going to deal with that your whole life. You need Messiah. You need Jesus. 
He's going to be the one to deliver you from that. And we as a church, that's our mission. That's our commission to share with people the love of Jesus. To share the love of that Messiah. To say, you are going to go through junk in your life. There's no reprieve from that until Messiah comes back, but you can live with him now. You can experience life with him now. And so in this meantime period, until the return of Christ, we wait for Christ's return, but no one here can say that they haven't faced opposition or injustice. Maybe you haven't faced persecution, but there are millions who have. And we all face that until the return of Christ. All of this is pointing all the way back to Genesis 3. Where each of us has this struggle of wanting to be our own God. That's Genesis 3. Where Eve takes that fruit that is not supposed to be taken of and takes that. It's not just being naughty, Eve, you shouldn't have done that. What is that all about, really? This is God showing us that You've always wanted to decide things for yourself. You've always wanted to determine for yourself what is good and what is evil. You've always thought that you're smarter than you really are. To think that you can determine what you want to believe and how you want to live and making these arbitrary judgments as to what those things are as opposed to listening to the God of the universe who created all things, who doesn't gain understanding or knowledge or wisdom from anything else because he contains it himself. And I want you to live with me, but you continue to rebel and push away and want to determine what is good and evil for yourself. And so looking back in chapter 11, we can see that every single one of us has that spirit of antichrist right inside of us that is pushing where our allegiance is actually to myself rather than to anybody else. I want to live the way that I want. I want to make my own judgments as to what is good and what is evil. I want to just do anything I want to do at any time. And I don't want anybody else telling me what it is. But that's the spirit of Antichrist. That's the spirit of anti-God. But the spirit of God is greater if you receive it by faith to have God's presence in your life, to release that, to submit to that and say, is there even a possibility that you can be wrong? Is that even a possibility that you can make a wrong judgment on what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong? Is that even a possibility? Because the thing is, it, it is not a possibility with God. He is right and he does know what is wrong. And he keeps defining for us the rise and the fall of these empires, showing every time you guys get to do your own thing, that's what happens. People get enslaved. People get pulled into captivity. You don't get to live the way that you want. You don't get to express who you really are because these people will not allow you to. You will be persecuted. You will be forced into things you don't want to believe or think. And he keeps showing that throughout all of history, whether that's through Hitler in World War II or Mussolini or whoever else, Pol Pot in Cambodia, whatever it is, Idi Amin in, in, in Africa, no matter what, how you slice it, 
The antichrist, anti-God thing is there. And you think that you're experiencing freedom, but you're not. And I'm going to show you throughout history over and over again. If you let anything else dictate you except for me, except for Jesus Christ, God, this is what happens. We all have that spirit of antichrist in us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask for forgiveness for when we are so arrogant and prideful to think that we know right from wrong. When you've told us through your word as well as just your life, resurrection, ascension as to who we can depend on and trust and you're right, in Daniel 11 we have this broad stroke of history that just shows us over and over again how far we are from you. And so we ask for a spirit of humility, a spirit of faith-seeking understanding that you would reveal to us truth, that the arrogance and the pride would be pushed aside. God, thank you for your patience. Um, we just have had so many generations of people who continue to reject and push you away and I'm sorry I believe the our church is sorry as well help us to see you in all of your love in Jesus name Amen